It's good to be back. How's everybody this morning? Y'all notice I don't bring my Bible up here. It's not because I don't use it. It's just that the words are so small in that that uh, I printed out in a little bit larger text. So we've been going through the series called Ancient Grace. We've looked at Old Testament stories of salvation. And in these stories, we've seen a larger story, a continuing story of God and his plan of redemption for Israel, his chosen people. Chronologically, this message would have been in about the center of the series, but I passed over it as we went through for a couple of reasons. One, it's a bit different. It's almost like a counterpoint to the others because we're looking at a character, not of Israel, but among the enemies of Israel, a character that was an oppressor of Israel. So it's a little bit different. The second reason that it was just too long, do you really want to listen to me for 50 or 60 minutes? Well, I come back to the message today with a major revision. You'll be relieved to know that I've cut it almost in half. Originally, I dealt with three Old Testament characters. Today, we will visit with just one. We'll also approach this message a bit differently. Because of the large amount of scripture that we use, I won't open with the normal scripture reading. Instead, I'll read portions of the text as we move through the story. So let me pray for us and we'll get started. Father God, have mercy on us as we consider your word. Teach us your truth as we consider the scripture. Open our ears to hear, our minds to understand, and our hearts to embrace the truth of the gospel that we see revealed time and time again, whenever and wherever we turn in your inspired word. We ask this in the name of Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. So again, this message is a change of pace. We'll focus our attention today on a man who is outside of the people of Israel. This is a guy of the worst sort. He's a pagan king. Now, several questions might pop in your mind when you think about pagans, especially pagan kings. Does God work through pagans? Does God call people from pagan nations to repent? Would God ever save a pagan king? Well, let's consider the story of a pagan king and see what we might learn. The story takes place about 600 years before the birth of Christ. Two evil kings of Israel, Jehoahaz and then Zedekiah, puppets of the Egyptians and the Babylonians, have succeeded Josiah, who was the last king that was loyal to the Lord. You can read that story in Jeremiah 21, where God tells of the judgment coming upon Israel. In that passage, you learn that the great Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, is at war with Israel. Things are going bad for Israel. So Zedekiah, the king of Israel, asked Jeremiah to inquire the Lord. Zedekiah knows his history. He knows that God has given Israel a bailout many times over the years. And the king desperately hopes for a repeat. He hopes that God will deal with Israel in mercy rather than justice. But Israel's sin has been great, and this time judgment is coming. God tells Jeremiah to inform the king that they're going to come in second in the coming conflict. It seems that God has turned against Israel and will be fighting on the side of a pagan king. Israel learns that they will be struck down and that the king of Babylon will burn the city with fire. This is the start of the period in Jewish history known as the exile. Israel is told that they will be carried off to foreign captivity that will last for 70 years. Now, that would be disheartening 
and terrifying to the people. All but the youngest would realize that their chance of ever seeing their homeland again is all but nil. Further on in Jeremiah 32, God explains to Jeremiah that he is acting as he is because Israel has been practicing evil. And this evil has infected not only the laity, but the kings, the leaders, the priests, and even the prophets. The entire nation has acted like pagans. They've defiled the temple and they've turned from God to Baal. It's almost as if God has said, if Israel wants to act like pagans, I'll send them to a pagan land and they can get their fill of it. So God uses a pagan country and a pagan king to execute his judgment on Israel. God, however, is a covenant God. In the long run, he always remains faithful to his covenant promise to Israel. Regardless of how much they deserve to be destroyed, he always saves a remnant for himself. He always restores his people to their inheritance. You can see this laid out in detail in Jeremiah 32. God uses the things of this world for his purposes. In the conquest of Canaan, Israel was God's judgment of wrath against pagan cities like Jericho. But before the battle was joined, God made it clear that the victory that Israel would enjoy were not because of any virtue in Israel. And now we see God use Nebuchadnezzar to execute judgment over Israel. And we can rightly deduce that Nebuchadnezzar was given power over Israel, not because of any good in Nebuchadnezzar, but because it was God's purpose to punish Israel for turning away from God. But God is ever faithful to his covenant promises. Israel will be restored to the promised land and their favored status. But before that happens, Israel will be in exile for 70 years. Let's go now to chapter one of the book of Daniel to consider a few faithful men and how they fare in a pagan land during this time of exile. Starting in Daniel 1 at verse 3, we read, Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, youths in whom was no defect and who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered him to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank, and appointed that they should be educated for three years, at the end of which they were in her service enter the king's personal service. Now among them, from the sons of Judah, were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them, and to Daniel, he assigned the name Belshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. So the stage is set. The army of Nebuchadnezzar has overrun Jerusalem and carried the Israelites into captivity. And among those captures are Daniel and his three close friends. They find themselves picked as candidates for the king's indoctrination plan. They will learn the language and the culture of their captors, and they will be trained to serve the king. As part of their transition to the new role, the Israelite captives are given new names. The pagan king brings about the new servant relationship, and the change is marked by a change in names. Daniel and his three friends, they study their new lessons. Now these young men are given gifts by God, gifts of knowledge, intelligence, in everything they do. 
Not only that, but like Joseph in Egypt, Daniel is given the ability to interpret dreams. So picking up the story in chapter 1 at verse 17, we read, And as for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. Then at the end of the days, which the king had specified for presenting them, the commander of the officials presented them before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king talked with them, and out of them all, not one, was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's personal service. And as for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and the conjurers who were in his realm. So not only can Daniel interpret dreams, he and his friends have a wisdom that defies logic. Our text tells us that they were ten times better than the best of the Babylonians. That is such a disparity that it can only be by divine intervention. It's obvious something's in the wind. The four friends enter the service of the king, and all goes well for a while. But then the king, like Pharaoh in the days of Joseph, begins to dream. Continuing the story in verse 1 of chapter 2. Now in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Then the king gave orders to call in the magicians, the conjurers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldean to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to understand the dream. Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell the dream to your servants, and we will declare the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The command from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you will be torn limb from limb and your houses will be made a rubbish heap. But if you declare the dream and its interpretation, you will receive from me gifts and reward and great honor. Therefore, declare to me the dream and its interpretation. So Nebuchadnezzar's dream troubles him to the point that he can't sleep. So he calls for the magicians and their ilk and asks for an interpretation of the dream. Now perhaps Nebuchadnezzar had some, has had some experience with these characters that it was less than satisfying. So this time he tells them that they must tell him the dream and its interpretation. If they do, great reward. If they fail, the penalty is death. As the text continues, the magician argues that no one on earth can both read minds and interpret dreams. They claim that the king is asking the impossible. Picking up the story in verse seven, they answered a second time and said, let the king tell the dream to his servants and we will declare the interpretation. The king answered and said, I know for certain that you are bargaining for time, inasmuch as you have seen that the command from me is firm, that if you do not make the dream known to me, there is only one decree for you. For you have agreed together to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the situation is changed. Therefore, tell me the dream that I may know that you can declare to me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who could declare the matter to the king, inasmuch as no great king or ruler has ever asked anything like this of any magician, conjurer, or Chaldean. Moreover, the things which the king demands is difficult. There is no one else who could declare it to the king except God's, whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. 
Sounds like Nebuchadnezzar has a suspicion that these guys are not quite so gifted as they claim. And evidently, this dream is so compelling that he is not willing to take a chance that he might be deceived. So he stands firm in his decree and becomes furious when the magicians show their true colors. So the order goes out to kill the magicians. Daniel and his friends are included in that order. In verse 12 we read, Because of this, the king became indignant and very furious and gave orders to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree went forth that the wise men should be slain, and they looked for Daniel and his friends to kill them. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar is the original tough guy. He killed the entire family of King Zedekiah of Israel and even tortured Zedekiah himself. He does not shrink from violence and would have no hesitation in putting his advisors to death. Daniel and his friends are among those under the death sentence. But Daniel asked for an audience with the king in order to provide the interpretation the king demands. Daniel offers to do what all the wise men of Babylon could not do. He offers to tell the to tell and interpret the dream. But before he goes to the king, he asks his three fr friends to make intercessory prayer for him. God reveals the dream to Daniel, and with praise on his lips, Daniel goes before the king. When the king questions Daniel about his ability, Daniel takes no credit. Instead, he witnesses to Nebuchadnezzar about God, giving God not only the credit for the interpretation, but witnessing to the king that the dream itself is an insight into the future that God has provided. Picking up the story in verse 26. The king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered before the king and said, as for the mystery about which the king has inquired, neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, nor diviners are able to declare it to the king. However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mystery he's made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. This was your dream and the visions in your mind while on your bed. As for you, O king, while on your bed, your thoughts turned to what would take place in the future. And he who reveals mysteries has made known to you what will take place. But as for me, this mystery has not been revealed to me for any wisdom residing in me more than any other living man. But for the purpose of making the interpretation known to the king, that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. So after witnessing to the king concerning the power of God, and giving God all the credit, Daniel proceeds to tell the king the dream. Reading further, you, O king, were looking and behold, there was a single great statue. That statue, which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you and its appearance was awesome. The head of that statue was made of fine gold, its breasts and arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So Daniel's done what no other man in the kingdom can do. And what the wise men say is impossible. He tells the king what the dream was and what a dream it was. The king has dreamed of this great statue 
majestic in its size and great in its value of precious metals. But then the dream takes on a dark aspect when the statue is destroyed in front of the king. No wonder the king sets such a high bar for the magicians. The dream is awesome. It's frightening. And the king does not want his ears tickled. The king wants to know the real meaning, and Daniel proceeds to give just that. Picking up the text at verse 36. This was the dream. Now we shall tell its interpretation before the king. You, O king, are the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. And wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand and caused you to rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Skipping down to verse 44. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms. But it itself will endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. So first, Daniel tells the king that God has given Nebuchadnezzar power over the nations and that the head of gold represents the king himself. Other kingdoms are foretold as well, but the greatest prophecy is of a coming kingdom that will not be destroyed, that will endure forever. Prophecy of a coming king that will rule forever. Gives Nebuchadnezzar a lot to think about, doesn't it? He will hear again about this future king, and we'll take note of that again in a, in a little bit. But before we do, let's consider the king's response to Daniel's revelation. In verse 47, we read, The king answered Daniel and said, Surely your God, notice the your God, is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, since you have been able to reveal this mystery. We see Nebuchadnezzar acknowledge God Almighty. But we sort of have to assume that this is a head knowledge only. There's no real change in the king heart. He talks about Daniel's God, not his God. The king is not broken. He is not converted. And he does not become a worshiper of God. He is still self-centered, still basking in his own glory. We see that confirmed in chapter 3 when Nebuchadnezzar sets up an idol 90 feet tall and commands everyone to worship it, condemns to death by fire all who refuse to bow. Now, most people, when they look at this text, they concentrate on the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And it's right to look at their story. The gospel is revealed in that story. But the story of Nebuchadnezzar is important also. Let's take a notice of him as we move through the text. We see the friends brought under condemnation because they will not dishonor God by committing idolatry. They will not worship the idol, which they've been commanded to worship by the king. So look at the reaction of Nebuchadnezzar. Reading again in Daniel 3 at verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar in rage and anger gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, Is it true? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you will not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made very well. But if you will not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, 
We do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O Lord, or O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you set up. So in this familiar story, Nebuchadnezzar charges the men with what amounts to treason, but he gives them a chance to redeem themselves by publicly obeying the decree of the king. As we know, our three heroes defy the king, and they witness that God has the ability to save them. But they also pledge that should God choose not to act, they're still not going to commit the sin of idolatry. Nebuchadnezzar is not accustomed to defiant subjects, and he reacts as one might expect. And we see the story continue at verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with wrath. His facial expression was altered towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He answered by giving orders to heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. And he commanded certain valiant warriors who were in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in order to cast them into the furnace of blazing fire. The king has to preserve his absolute authority. Nobody can be allowed to defy the king yet remain alive. So the order is given and the three men are thrown into the fire. Their chances are nil. Even though that those that carry out the king's orders are overcome by the heat and die doing their duty. But then the king gets a shock when he sees the results of his action. Picking up at verse 24. Nebuchadnezzar the king was astounded and stood up in haste. He responded and said to his high officials, Was it not three men we cast bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said to the king, Certainly, O king. He answered and said, Look, I see four men loosed and walking around in the midst of the fire without harm, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the furnace of blazing fire. He responded and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out, you servants of the Most High God, and come here. Now, depending on the version you use, the text might say that the king was amazed or astonished, but I like the New American Standard, which says that he was astounded. You would be too if you saw what the king saw. Three men who were called, who had called on their God for deliverance from the fire have been set free of their bonds and are walking around in the fire. But what's even more astounding is the fourth person that has appeared from nowhere. The king doesn't only remark that the three are still living, he is astounded by the presence of the fourth man, of whom the king says has an appearance like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar is privileged to witness the salvation of the three men. And we should note in passing that these three men are saved by a merciful act of God. They have no power to save themselves. By this point in the story, they're passive players. They're actually saved by grace alone. These men had expressed an unshakable faith in God's ability to save. Even though they didn't know whether God would act, they trusted him with their lives. And their faith is proven by their witness to God's saving power. They're saved through faith alone. I also believe that Nebuchadnezzar rightly identified the fourth man. I believe this to be a Christophany, a bodily appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ. Divine intervention is needed to save our three heroes. And Jesus, the picture of divine intervention, provides a salvation that astounds everyone who witnesses it. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are saved by grace through faith 
in Christ, Nebuchadnezzar has a front row seat for the salvation of the three. The fact that the three don't die is proof that the God of Israel is real, is powerful, and is full of grace. Any anyone who witnesses so great a salvation should fall on their knees before such a God. Let's look at the reaction of Nebuchadnezzar, reading at verse 28. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who put their trust in him, violating the king's command, and yielded up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree that any person, nation, or tongue that speaks anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses reduced to a rubbish heap, inasmuch as there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way. Then the king called Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to prosper in the province of Babylon. So the king acknowledged the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But again, we ask the question, is this an acknowledgement of the heart or the head? Well, to answer the question, we have to look at the fruit. We can't see inside the heart. And words by themselves are just words. Jesus told us in Matthew 7, 16, you will know them by their fruits. So what kind of fruit did Nebuchadnezzar bear? Even though we see him praising God by saying, how great are his signs, how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom's an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. Well, later in verse 8, we read, but Daniel came in before me, whose name is Belshazzar, according to the name of my God, and is in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. That statement by the king refers back yet to his pagan gods. He may be praising God Almighty, but he's not forsaking his pagan gods. You cannot serve God Almighty and still believe and serve pagan gods. With Yahweh, it is always all or nothing. The God of Israel is a God of exclusivity. It says in Exodus, in the first commandment, which was good timing for the uh, uh, chapter from the Westminster Confession, but the text in, in Exodus says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And the story in Daniel confirms that even after the miracles that Nebuchadnezzar has witnessed, even after his dream was revealed, he's not yet a changed man. His heart has not become softened. It's still a heart of stone. He worships God Almighty alongside his pagan gods. He has not learned yet to trust God alone. His loyalty is divided. He has head knowledge, but he is not transformed in his heart. He's still in his sin. He's also still dreaming. He dreams of this great tree that grows and provides food for all. Knowing where to go for dream interpretation, this time he bypasses all the usual magicians and wise men and goes straight to Daniel and tells him the dream. Reading in chapter 4 at verse 10. Now these were the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed. I was looking and behold, there was a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew large and became strong and its height reached to the sky and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its foliage was be beautiful and its fruit abundant and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the sky dwelt in its branches, and all living creatures fed themselves from it. I was looking in the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed, and behold, an angelic watcher, a holy one, descended from heaven. He shouted out and spoke as follows, chop down the tree and cut off its branches, strip off its foliage and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts of the field 
flee from under it and the birds from its branches, yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground, but with a band of iron and bronze around it in the new grass of the field, and let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, and let him share with the beast in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man, and let a beast's mind be given to him, and let seven periods of time pass over him. This sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers, and the decision is a command of the holy ones, in order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind, and bestows it on whom he wishes, and sets over it the lowliest of men. So Nebuchadnezzar tells Daniel the dream, and Daniel dream, realizes this dream is it's not good news. He tells the king that he wishes the dream applied to the king's enemies instead of the king himself. And then he reluctantly tells the king what the dream means. In verse 22, Daniel tells the king that the tree represents the king himself. It is you, O king. He tells the king that the great tree represents the greatness of the king, but that the chopping down of the tree, leaving only a stump, means that the king is going to be reduced to insignificance that the king will be driven away from the company of men, that he will become like an animal, eat grass like a cow. And this humiliation will last for seven periods of time, most likely seven years. But it will continue until Nebuchadnezzar recognizes that Almighty God is sovereign over kings. Reading further in chapter 4 at verse 24. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my lord the king, that you may be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place be with the beasts of the field. And you will be given grass to eat like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. And in, the, in that it was commanded to leave the stump with roots of the tree. Your kingdom will be assured to you after you recognize that it is heaven that rules. Therefore, O king, may my advice be pleasing to you. Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. So Daniel follows up the interpretation of the dream with a call to repentance. He suggests to the king that the judgment might be lifted if the king turns away and repents. You might ask yourself, what would have happened if Nebuchadnezzar had repented? I believe that God would have withheld the promised judgment as he did in the case of Nineveh back in the book of Jonah. But that's not the case here. Nebuchadnezzar does not change his ways. In spite of his head knowledge of Daniel's God, a year later, an unrepentant Nebuchadnezzar is basking in his own glory when God strikes him with madness. Picking up the story in verse 29. Twelve months later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. The king reflected and said, is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you, and you will be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You'll be given grass to eat like cattle, and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Immediately, the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled, and he was driven away from mankind, began eating grass like cattle, 
and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. How the mighty have fallen. Nebuchadnezzar was the most powerful man in the world. He looked over his kingdom and glorified himself for its greatness. And then judgment struck. He is struck with madness, driven from the city, lives like an animal. Text talks about his hair growing like eagle's feathers, nails like bird claws. It's a vivid picture of total humiliation. The once mighty king is living in filth, taking no care of his appearance, letting his hair grow into a wild, matted tangle. It's apparent that he has lost his sanity, and he'll exist in this state for seven periods of time. Again, likely seven years. But however long it is, the time is sufficient to completely humble the king. Why would God do that to this man? Maybe he has plans for him. Let's look at the story as it continues to unfold at verse 34. But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. But he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what hast thou done? At that time my reason returned to me, and my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom. And my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out. So I was reestablished in my sovereignty, and surpassing greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are true and his ways just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. It's interesting to notice the change in Nebuchadnezzar that takes place over these couple chapters. At first, Nebuchadnezzar threatens other people who do not acknowledge the greatness of Daniel's God. But here, Nebuchadnezzar himself offers worship. He is praise and honor to one he calls the king of heaven. And then he acknowledges that his ways are just. After what Nebuchadnezzar has been through, to say that God is just is to say that what happened to Nebuchadnezzar was right, was just, that God's harsh treatment was a good thing. There's no cry of indignation, no of, suggestion of perceived injustice. And it indicates to me that God has not only broken this man, but may have converted him as well. The once and again mighty pagan king, the most powerful man in the world, is worshiping God Almighty and giving him praise and glory for humbling the proud, for humbling Nebuchadnezzar. In these first chapters of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar has been witnessed to, he's shown the power of God, he showed the salvation that's provided by the Son of God, and he's shown that his own power means nothing. He comes to a place in his life that he cannot deliver himself, yet he is delivered by one who has the power. He's delivered by the grace of Almighty God. And in response, he worships this God, expressing a faith in the just ways of this God, knowing that the God of Daniel is the one true God. Head knowledge this time? Maybe, but I don't think so. I believe that the God of Daniel is now the God of Nebuchadnezzar. I actually expect to meet him in heaven one day. And if so, it'll be because he has been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Earlier I asked if God calls pagans to repentance. The answer is yes. 
before we were born again, we were all pagans. So we need to examine ourselves. Is our knowledge of God head knowledge or is it heart knowledge? Are we like Nebuchadnezzar before he was humbled or after? Nebuchadnezzar is not that much different from you and I or anyone else in matters pertaining to salvation. Salvation is always and only by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Let us pray. Father, we give you all the praise and all the glory for calling to repentance pagan from days of old and pagans like us in this current age. Keep us ever mindful of who we are in Christ. Grant us a hunger to know you more through your revealed word that our love for you might grow ever stronger until that day we see you face to face. We ask this in the name of the fourth man in the fire, Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen.